And we are live. That's live for us anyways. And you're locked in to the Kansas City Social Hour. And I'm your humble host, Ruben Ortiz. Let's get it on. What's up, Kansas City? I got a question for the president. We've been working where the hell you been? Pull up, you better think again. What's the day without a Mexican? Hey, mi gente bailando, mi gente gritando. I got people in my family, got no papers Posted at the Home Depot, searching for some labor Taco Tuesday, yeah, dawg, you can thank us Bob's working Ruby Tuesday, they ain't pay much We ain't going back to bro like I'm a banker It could be six below, let's get the paper Got a bit from Sinaloa, I wear no makeup She just wanna get to know me for the paper You know when the heat on, we gon' be on Ride with no AC on, in the Nissan There's some things we don't agree on We want freedom, can't treat me like a peon Can't like Leon for the president We've been working where the hell you been Pull up, you better think again What's the day without a Mexican? What's the day without a Mexican? Well, there wouldn't be this KC Social Hour podcast And this is a great podcast Because your boy is Mexican-American That's Cap G A day without a Mexican Check it out, stream it, download it Check out the video, it's a cool video On this episode of the podcast, it's beer author, food author extraordinaire, Pete Doolin. I've been calling him Pete Doolin for a while, and then I listened back on the podcast, and his pronunciation of it is actually Doolin, and I was calling him Doolin. I like Doolin. Pete Doolin is on the podcast today, and it is a great episode. My man is super brilliant. And I was in an inquisitive mood, and I was picking his brain from anything from prohibition, food, his authoring, and his latest passion, fence-style vineyards and winery in Excelsior Springs, Missouri. Check him out on Facebook, fence-style vineyards and winery in Excelsior Springs, Missouri. Great stuff. He goes into it in detail in this podcast. It's a great listen, guys. So without anything further... Let's get into the podcast. Catch you on the flip side. And we are live. That's live for us anyways. And this is another episode of the Kansas City Social Hour. And I am here with my man, Pete Dolan. And uh, Pete, I'll, I'll, you'll do a better job at giving a description of what it is that you do. So I'll just let you give us a quick background on what it is that you do. Uh, he's, I know you're. a lot of folks that are listening already know that you're an author and so, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm probably best known as a, a food and beer writer. I've been a, a freelance writer for um, about 20 years, I'm writing for various publications in print and online. And uh, I've also published four books. Um, the very first one was called Last Bite. It was a cookbook that I did um, as an offshoot. Of that was the first one? Is that what yeah. You okay, yeah, what was it called? Yeah, that came out in... 2012. It was called Last Bite. And, oh, okay. Yeah, and it featured. See, I didn't uh, know that, man. Yeah. Um, 
at the time, I was doing a, a recipe column through the Kansas City Stars, uh, Star Magazine that came out on Sundays, um, back in the days when people re- read print newspapers. And uh, after three years of doing this this column, um, which featured recipes from local chefs, uh, I got the idea to pull those recipes together and produce uh, this book. Uh, and the Kansas City Star had a book division at the time, so I worked out a deal uh, with the... Uh, the publisher to produce this uh, cookbook featuring these these recipes, and that was kind of my first foray into uh, publishing and kind of learning how to not only um, edit and manage a, a print project like that, but also how to promote the book. And then um, the next book that I did is called Casey Ale Trail. That's when I you came on to. Uh, my radar the most just because of the beer deal i mean i just i like beer so much and then so i was like oh so cool man that there's a book on kansas city beer you know or yeah and that was a really exciting um time so that book was self-published and um i have a, what a good idea a, a print background and um of course like the writing and editing background and so i was able to kind of pull together the right design team um and then my my skills to write, edit, and produce this book that came out in 2014, which is, it was really timely because it was kind of at the very early stages of Kansas City craft brewing community. And uh, I I kind of look at it as a... um, Like a watermark? A a, a watermark of, you know, or snapshot of what what was happening at that time, knowing that things were going to quickly change. And for people that own a copy, it's sold out now. Um, But you can look at it and kind of see the growth that's happened. Um, you know, some of the early breweries like um, Martin City, Cinder Block, Big Rip, and, and a, a few others were just getting started. And, of course, you know, other breweries like Boulevard were in there that, you know, have been around for quite a while. So it's almost like a like a, like an archival record of, like, things, right? You know what I mean? Like if you get it, it's, it's fun to see that snapshot in time when shit was really about to hit the fan for Kansas City Brewing. And that's that's a fascinating... Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, even like uh, Red Crow Brewing was just getting started in like Crane Brewing. And of course, you know, both of those breweries like really took off in different directions. Um, and so it's, it's funny to, to look at those breweries in, in their different stages and kind of where they are now. Um, so it's a good reference point. And it included... Breweries not only in Kansas City, but Lawrence, Topeka, Manhattan, and Springfield. Mm-hmm. So I had some regional coverage, too. Um, and then a few years later, I did uh, Kansas City Beer, which is a history of brewing in Kansas City. And that goes from the mid-1800s all the way up to present. Dude, that is so interesting. Um, what was uh, some of the more fascinating because one of the things that's so important about doing a book like that is you have to do a ton of research right so what was that process like and what were some of the the more fascinating things that you discovered on that journey it's i I think there was definitely a a lot of history um to research for for sure and um it was different from the other books that i'd written because um these are things that happen 200 or more years ago. So those people weren't around to interview. So I was digging through books, historical records, 
um, looking at the the annual records of Kansas City businesses, spending time at the library. Um, <laughs> but also, you know... Um, did you enjoy that process? I did, actually. It was kind of uncovering um, the history of, of the city in a way um, that I, I hadn't before. And so I'm born and raised in, in Kansas City. And um, this was kind of like looking through a prism of Kansas City's earliest days through the lens of local brewing. And uh, after you know, Kansas City first got started on the banks of the Missouri River, the first brewers showed up about 30 years later. So you know, within a, th- a three-decade span, like, you had the first immigrants that were setting up shop in uh, this what we call the River Market area now and uh, were producing beer. Is that the, one of the most important things is that the, that ready access to a water source? That, that kind of spurs that whole, or what? It, or is what is it that made it people brew so quickly? I mean, besides the obvious, right? But uh, well, um, people just wanted good shit to drink, Ruben. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there was definitely a, a good demand or you know a thirst for um, <laughs> beer for sure, which has um, waned oddly enough. No, I'm just kidding. No, nah, it's, it's stronger than ever. But uh, you know, back then, like. Um, the, the earliest brewers, one of the inter- interesting things that I found out was you know, some of the earliest brewers in, in Kansas City as well as elsewhere in the country um, were brewing more um, English styles like porters and ales. And it wasn't until um, later in like the late 1850s, 1860s, when you had this wave of German immigrants that were coming to the U.S., and um, moving from the East Coast to St. Louis and then over to, to Kansas City and further west, they brought uh, the know-how and the technology to produce loggers. Okay. And so... So initially, the the first run of breweries in this area were, were English styles? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Um, as well as, you know... So like ales east. because, you know, you don't need the Yeah, there was ales, porters, and, and, and stouts for sure. And that was kind of a carryover from um, the country's history. I mean, the United States was still a fairly young nation. And so being, um, you know, the colonies from England, naturally people um, carried over the, you know, the styles that they were used to drinking. Um because no one knew how to produce lagers at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the Germans came over, um, <clears throat> and then a lot of them made their, their way from St. Louis and then over to, to Kansas City um, and you know, brought that, that style as well as recipes. Um, and lagers quickly swept the nation and really changed the, the course of history in the U.S. They've, they've continued to be the most popular style as a and as a broad class to and, this day and it don't it, lagers need like they're cold fermented right 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 so how, was it a matter of there was just not the technology to do that or how were they doing the cooled beers i mean it's probably a stupid question dudes are probably like rolling their eyes but why why how was it possible was it not possible to do a lager before, or how, where would, how would they do the cold fermentation without refrigeration at that? Or was there refrigeration or ice? Well, or? Uh, they resorted to, like, really fundamental techniques. So, like, I mean, the possibility was there, because certainly lagers were being produced back in, in Europe. But uh, in the U.S., um, 
since it's a it's colder fermentation and it takes longer um, for for lagers to produce than than ales, um, so they're they're more expensive. But a lot of times, uh, these breweries would be established close to a source, uh, a water source, like a, a river. In the wintertime, like you'd have okay, so you like know, ice know. on the river, so they would carve out blocks of ice, um, put them in um, you know cellars that were dug out, um, and have their lager tanks in there so that the, the lagers could stay cold year-round. Um, and in fact... That's so the, badass. The man. history of like uh, Western Brewing. If you if you get a chance to take a tour up there, you know they're they're known for having um, like caves and the shit. Caves and you know with the five different levels, and at the bottommost level, they had uh, tanks of, of beer down there. Um, these these oak barrels, and uh, they were packed with ice that they um, cut up from the river, drug up the riverbanks, and wow, so like, you had things like that. Um, early on, so were those beers premium then, like a lager, like if you came up, or was it just like any other beer? But it seemed like, damn, if you had to go through the effort of doing that, right? That those would, beers would be more of a, at a premium, but they're maybe probably they sh- slightly more expensive, but um, I mean, not like a huge difference. I would think because okay. I think back then um, they made up for it in vol- volume because you had huge There's waves just so of much immigrants shit. coming, and they're they're selling so much. Beer, um, it was creating you know, lots of jobs, and, and people were consuming lots of uh, beer, ales, and lagers. That uh, I don't think they had to charge a whole lot more for it. So, what was the time period that that book covered? So, that book, Kansas City Beer, um, covered um, brewing, which started really in the the eighteen fifties all the way to present day. So, um, the book came out in twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually kind of kick off the, the book talking about the earliest development of Kansas City um, from the first uh, fur choppers and traders who were, were French and how Kansas City got started on the banks of the Missouri River. Because, again, like that was only about 30 years before the first brewery was established, which was um, at like 3rd and Main Street in what we call the city market today. Um, and that... The brewer there was uh, Peter John Switz Gable, um, who set up the brewery. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what's interesting to me is, is how things come full circle. And you know, today you have Strange Days Brewing, which is just li- literally like a block, block and a half away from where the very first brewery was established um, a couple hundred years ago. That's crazy. And so was there a, uh, a pretty extensive or... Did you cover, obviously you covered like prohibition and how did that affect the beer industry in this area? Or, I mean, obviously it stopped sales, but um, did it keep going? Did it go underground? What was going on there? Um, or was it, it was pretty devastating. So, you know, leading up to prohibition, you know, prohibition, national prohibition was 1920 to 1933. So you have this, uh, 60 to 70 year period of brewing that was happening from the, the mid to late 1800s. And a lot of breweries sprung up, um, not only in, in the downtown area, but, um, you know, along the river, but they continued into what would be today's crossroads, you know, with main street and grand, like being the, the main corridors, you had a lot of breweries that were popping up. Um, and then once railroads came along, breweries had the, capability of distribution so they were able to produce larger amounts and then start shipping their beer outbound 
and breweries uh, throughout the area could also ship their beer inbound to Kansas City, which was the largest market at the time. So you had beer that was coming in from St. Joe and Leavenworth and uh, Lawrence and and even further out. So brewing was this really thriving, bustling industry. Um, it was employing lots of people. Um, it was growing um, and mirroring the growth of railroads. And then you had uh, technology develop with uh, refrigeration. Uh, so you had refrigerated cars on railroads um, that also helped preserve, um, you know, beer. So like, there were, there was a lot of growth in, in sales in that period. And then when Prohibition came along in 1920, it shut all that shit down. It pretty much, yeah, it kept the news out from the, the industry by and large. Now you had a few that were um, still producing and selling illegally, and of course, um, you know, when Boss Tom Pendergast, who was um, kind of the the head of the political machine at the time, this would Which have been the, the distillery now. Um, Tomstown. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it, like his, kind of his namesake, right? It's named yeah, after it's named it. after him. <laughs> um, Interesting. Yeah, so like during his his time, um, which would have been like the the late twenties, early thirties, he and and police kind of turned a blind eye to uh, alcohol that was was flowing, both beer and, and spirits. So you still had some um, breweries that kind of operated um, illegally under the wire, um, and of course there were still going to be home brewers and people that are producing stuff um, on their own. Um, but, but the machine had been essentially shut down, uh, the, the big machine. Yeah, uh, the, the biggest breweries at the, at the time, like um, you had uh, the breweries in the, in the East Bottoms. Um, there was, uh, you know, like Imperial Brewery was really... Growing strong. That's the the iconic one that where the building still stands off of yeah. Five. They're trying to lease or sell that building now, right? Yeah. There's always yeah. There is the Heim Brewery in uh, the East Bottoms where uh, Jay Rieger is kind of based now. Yes, um, that was another prominent brewery of its of its time, and uh, a, you know, a handful of others that had grown fairly large. Um, Yulebach, uh was yet another that. that that's one that, that always comes up for me, the, the Mulebach, because they did such a good job of branding their stuff, right? They branded like ashtrays, clocks. And, so did Prohibition shut down some of those big guys permanently, or were they. And which ones did they shut down permanently, and which ones continued after um, well, they came uh, back? All of them um, pretty much shut down at the time. Yeah. A couple of them came back, and, and Mulebach was one of was them. That, that's why I see yeah. so much memorabilia of that particular brewery. Yeah, versus- Mulebach um, kind of um, reformed. They they got some some capital, some financing, and, and a business plan, and they actually rebuilt, and they actually moved their brewery, which was um, originally it was in around the 19th or 20th Street in, in Maine, like in the heart of the crossroads, um, and they moved it back to the River Market area around uh, 4th and uh, like 4th and Oak. And they gradually built um, this campus where they had multiple buildings and, and it occupied most of a city block. Um, and so after Prohibition, the big shift was that like, breweries were no longer really mom-and-pop operations. Scale was, was the... Uh, the approach it's like the more beer that you could produce yeah, on a factory that, level 
Um, and that was happening in Kansas City, but also throughout the upper Midwest and all the kind of the classic beers that we know, like from our grandparents' generation, like, you know, uh, Schlitz, Falstaff, um, you know, all these old kind of German inspired breweries. Um, they were all like, getting up and going during oh. that time um, after Prohibition. And okay. the idea was mass production. Mass production um, to get economies to scale, compete for different markets, and again, and this is kind of a reflection of where the country was at the time, right? So you have this industrial revolution. People aren't—they uh, don't have a lot of leisure time. They're not, you know, they're everyone's working their ass off, and so they don't want, you know, uh, maybe a chocolate cherry stout. They just want a a, a twelve pack or a case of beer. Yeah, cheap, easy drinking. <laughs> Beer and again, like I find was, that fascinating. It's yeah. predominantly lagers, um, yeah. Again, because you have these these beers that were um, inexpensive to produce. You have the economy of scale because they're being produced on a, a you know factory scale. And uh, like a lot of things at the time were right. So yeah, and the food was, production. Uh, you know, a part of what what drove it as well. I mean, historically, is um, you know, prohibition ended again in 1933. Um, you know, the First World War and then the Second World War happened um, in the early 40s. You know, a lot of soldiers that went overseas experienced beer in Germany and elsewhere throughout Europe. They came back to the States and they had a thirst for for What kind beer. of styles specifically do you, um, do you think kind of – German. I mean there were you – know, of course, like some you know, ales were um, predominant in England, um, but – you know, lagers and, and variations of, of German styles mm-hmm. were available throughout Europe. And so uh, those, those soldiers, uh, men and women, you know, came back to the U.S. and they wanted um, uh, beers that Bohemian reminded them. German style. Yeah, yeah, of their experiences overseas. And so you had um, these beers that were being produced um, and, you know, recipes that were adapted from family recipes and and canned and, and distributed to meet that demand. How awesome, man. So, uh, wow, that's some really cool stuff. Uh, and uh, so then, uh, n- so that was your second book, right? Yeah, that was actually my, so oh, that was the, the third one. The there third was the, one. The cookbook, then there's Casey Trail. Oh, okay. Kansas City Beer, which is the history book. And then the fourth book that I published is called Expedition of Thirst, and they came out about a year ago in November of 2017. That's the one that I have right here in the front. Yeah. And so Expedition of Thirst is a travel guidebook to regional breweries, wineries, and distilleries in the eastern half of Kansas, the western half of Missouri. <laughs> so, I mean, Pete, like, and I don't know if it, it, it seems, uh, so you, we had like that, the foodie thing, the foodie craze that, or, where things were, People were just super, and they still are, but, you know, at the time that you released your first book, uh, very timely, and I think the the uh, KC Ale Trail, uh, you know, it's timely in that that period of time, and then uh, craft beer was just getting going. A lot of people still not that familiar, although it's getting kind of hard to find somebody that's not in on the craft beer thing. You, you have a friend or a family member that's made you taste something, you know, outside of what you thought was the norm normal quote-unquote beer right and then uh 
you the history people once they started you know people well where does this come from you know what was the, i heard that there was all these breweries before and you know how did it get to where there was these math and so then you have that history book and then i think this one's timely too because uh now people want to when they travel to a place you know uh, a guide book and it's one of the most it's the number one question that beer tasting casey gets I'm going to, and I tried to make a joke about it the last time, and, and people didn't get it. They, offered, they actually offered me advice on it, which I thought was funny. It's like, I'm going to so-and-so. Please tell me the can't-miss brewery spots, the can't-miss whatever. You know, it's like the number one question to where I, I'm, I've, I've been on that page so much that I get a little annoyed by it at this point. I'm like, you know, get, get a book or, you know, do some research, but yeah, it's a quick and easy way to do that. But I was joking and I put like a sarcastic post about Iceland. I didn't realize how hot of a spot Iceland was apparently for craft beer because I got all these suggestions on shit. But I thought I was going to be, I was like, oh, this is funny. And, uh, no, I got a lot of serious answers. Some people got that I was trying to be funny, but most people were giving me like legit advice on my Icelandic journey, which will not happen. <laughs> but uh, it's a cheap air flight. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that was one of the things that people said. It was like I forgot what the price was, but so um, yeah, talk a little bit about the idea behind that. But I just wanted to just kind of point out, you know, your your timing on some of this stuff. It's just it's just really. I mean, are you just following your interests, or you just like get a feeling like I think stuff is going this way, or you're just strictly following your passion, or what's going on there? Well, a, a little of both. It's I've been passionate about writing about food for so long, and really, my interest in writing about food um, led to interest in writing about craft beer. Um, you know, I've been drinking quote unquote craft beer or microbrew beer. Um, in Kansas City since Boulevard came on the scene. So it's not necessarily new to me. But then, you know, in the early, you know, 2010, 2012, the first breweries started, um, kind of smaller production craft breweries were opening up around Kansas City. And um, I had an interest in that, uh, both to support them and, and see what they were doing. But it made sense to start writing about them as well because no one else was. Whereas with the the uh, foodie craze um, over the past you know, five, Sorry, seven I years. <laughs> I, no, it's fine. I, I don't like that term, foodie. I know, right? Um, but, you know. <laughs> I, did, I had a feeling that you didn't. You know, that, but, with, I mean, uh, how, what, what, what else do you say? What do you say? Just like a person who consumes things? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. It's, I mean, yeah, I like, it's like a – because who isn't into food, right? Right, right. I mean, right. but there's levels to it. It's like – yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, yeah. what do you call a food nerd? Or, or somebody that's like... I don't know. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's just, I don't get too hung up over it anymore because it, it's such a common term. But it's... Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's I have a different approach because, you know, personally, I've always loved to, you know, eat and drink. So it's just who you it. are. Like, you, yeah, don't want it, you don't put a label on it. Um, and then, you know, and you know, professionally, I've been doing it for so long that it's just like it's second nature to me. And so... To uh, all of a sudden be labeled as something, yeah, it's it. It always seems a little weird and and kind of odd, but well, I think that there's this uh, realization, and and it happened with a lot of these shows, you know. And and Anthony Bourdain has a big part to do with it as well as opening, just because of the mass uh, uh, appeal of the 
the amount of people that he was able to reach because of the networks that he was a part of, right? So I'm not saying that he was onto something that others hadn't been, you know, because obviously you've been on this beat and others have before, but his platform allowed him to reach a ton of people. But what I think people realized through that was a lot of people who weren't thinking about what they were eating started to think about what they're eating. And it's right. and it's like once some, something like that happens, like – it's it, it almost like a virus. It starts spreading all over the damn place, right? So yeah. there was these pockets of people who had always been thinking of like – and one of the things I didn't realize was like the political infl- – I mean, we were talking about beer and how it reflects what was going on in society. Prohibi- beer could be used as a litmus test for what's going on in society, right? Abs- absolutely. And food it does that. But I didn't yeah. realize that until I saw some episodes of Verdane and I read some more. I was like, oh, gosh, you know, food is political. Right. There's it's, a- food, um, you know, food and drink, whether it's alcohol or, or not, are like these unique intersections. Because, um, like, we're all human. We all, we all eat and drink. And, and food is, is cultural. It's political. It's personal. It's social. It's it's geographic. It's like they are there are things that are common denominators that have all these intersections, and I think um, it, it's kind of an outgrowth of, of technology and the internet, and, and then especially social media that came along. We're able to learn more, research more, access more, um, whether it's you know online through cable TV or social media. Um, and so when you had people like Bourdain and you know, other personalities where they had a, a cooking show or a chef or they were these food explorers, they were helping foster that conversation and um, bringing something very fundamental, what we eat and drink and put in our bodies. They were, they were bringing that home to people in, in a fresh context of, you know, here's, here's food. You can go down the street and to your neighborhood sushi place. And like at one point, you know, in the, the eighties, like sushi was like really rare. It was this still kind of foreign thing. It's hard to appreciate that now. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, now it's like you can go to your neighborhood grocery store and get sushi. And so I think younger generations don't necessarily, um, understand just like, don't go to a convenience so. store but yeah exactly <laughs> still don't do that <laughs> i've got stories about that but uh, you know I, things change uh you know culturally and, and food wise and i and i like use sushi as an example of how it used to be like this um kind of uncommon thing and rarefied and now it became mainstream and commonplace where you you have sushi restaurants that have popped up all over the place almost like your local coffee shop um, and it's so mainstream that you can go to the most pedestrian grocery store and, and get it as well. But then you had um, people that were cultural ambassadors and ambassadors of food um, through these these television shows that could take you back to the roots of you know the the fish markets in Tokyo um, or talking about the origins of food in Vietnam or Mexico or wherever. And I think people are craving that information about where does food come from? How is it prepared? What's the, the roots, the tradition, and the culture behind it? Gosh. You know, and a, a bunch of things are, are hitting my brain as you're talking. One of, one of the points that I thought w- that jumped into my head is like how 
food and drink are one of the first steps towards understanding or willing to embrace another culture. You know, so if like you, it was one of the first things that people do like, oh, I may not like those people in my head or these ideas that I have, but they make a damn good such and such. <laughs> right. 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 It, it, it's so cool that, that that could be a group's best foot forward initially. Right. So Absolutely. the embrace of, you know, those, those kind of foods. It's a way to connect with other people, you know, whether they're, you know, they're, they're foreign or familiar, like to be able to sit down and break bread with somebody or like, to have a beer, a glass of wine, to, you know, and, um, breaks down barriers and you start to get to know each other and, and share and trust and open up. And, um, on top of all that, if you do have the ability to, to travel, um, you want to generally seek out what's local. Now there's, you know, of course some people that want the familiar and like they will go to you the fast go to food McDonald's. experience. <laughs> Wherever they are, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's you know what you're comfortable with. But there are so many other people. It's like they want to eat the local food and and drink, and you know, and that's why you get those those questions of like, oh, I'm traveling to you know Seattle or Portland or <laughs> Miami. What's the can't miss place I have to go to? That's right. Um, so yeah, that's just a one scary and another thing that just jumped into my head, and I don't know if this is true, but it seems like it could be true, and I've seen little hints of it here and there. Is there's these? Uh, it seems that people don't really get totally biased. Um, seems that people don't really get good at cooking until well, it's like anything else until you do it multiple times, right? So like. I felt like my grandma, like she was like really killing it, right? <laughs> like right when she was, uh, and then my mom, she's a lot older now. She's really killing it right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But because of the popularity of certain foods that, you know, and because we're so connected, like I don't feel like, and there might be somebody, but I just feel like some of those things, they're getting lost at a rapid rate, man. Like there's there's all these flavors, all these old recipes, all these old ideas that we're just not capturing because maybe we're chasing like i you know there's all these like like fusion and and all this stuff is great but like what about those old timey just that people aren't giving a shot and then as people you know pass away and things they're just going away right and there's just there's no retrieving that once that stuff is gone it's i think there's a lot of truth to that and that's um you know, there's there's something to be said. I didn't mean for to say the, such a downer. I got all down. No, 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 no. It's. I mean, I think it's really important. Like whether it's, you know, the fundamentals of uh, of beer. You know, like mastering a certain style, like Pilsner. And, and I'm not a brewer whatsoever. But, I am, Pete. Let me tell you. Yeah. What, what, do you what did you want to know about the uh, brewing process? No, I'm just <laughs> I don't know shit either. That's oh, so just, funny that yeah. we're all like waxing poetic on all this shit. Like, by the way, none of us, uh, I brewed a, like a really shitty uh, Oktoberfest once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I, okay, I Why mean, don't I, you brew stuff? What's the deal? I, mean, I, I have my reason. I have I could give that. limited time and space to do it yes and um there's so many other things that i need and want to do with my time and there's such an abundance of great beer whether it's brewed locally or or elsewhere that you you that that that, i loved your 
the other parts that you're saying, but that is me too. I'm like, okay, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff being produced right now. What am I going to add to that? Or do I have an, another role? You know, and I think you yeah. found your role yeah. and I've found my little role. That's not, I mean, I'm not writing books, but yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I mean, I, I get it. I, even though I uh, am doing a lot of other things right now, it's over the course of my writing career. I, Think of myself as a storyteller and like sharing the although, stories of people. Although I would not uh, exclude the idea of collaborations, because right, because even though we might not be, you know, we you you catch a lot through as a terrible another terrible cliche term osmosis, right? <laughs> like yeah, yeah, you you're around it enough that you know certain things. You 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 have to pick it up, you know. Like like I know things that. You know, I'll sometimes surprise a brewer that I'm talking to him because I don't brew, but I'll say something halfway intelligent sometimes about the, <laughs> the process because you're just yeah. around it. So you're talking to so many people. About sure, it. I, I mean, I weigh so in you with could definitely do a collaboration. Like you could think of like, oh, you know what? This would be a really cool style for this ingredient on this particular day because of the cultural significance of blah, blah, blah. You know, right, and it right. would be an awesome release, right? And in fact, so I wouldn't exclude that from your re- – and I've seen that you've done some of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So like to promote the travel guidebook, Expedition of Thirst, um, in spring and summer of this year, I worked with seven different breweries uh, to collaborate on creating limited release beers. And the idea was – Awesome idea. Great idea. Brewery, make something that's unique to that brewery that hasn't been done before. And um, in a couple instances, I did go down and, and help on brew day. But in most cases, it was just talking with the brewery and like, this is the inspiration behind the book. These are some ideas on how it could have a local tie-in or maybe local ingredients um, or just a, a a style that represented um, you know, aspects of me, um, half Thai. And so a couple of breweries produced beers that were inspired by Thai cuisine and and Thai ingredients. Um, And I I have a culinary background as as well. And so I was able to offer suggestions on ingredients and and things that could play well with certain beers. Gosh, man, you just got me really excited about an idea that, you know, as far along as we think this beer – because I think the idea for you to collaborate – is this money? And did you put your face on the beers? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, <laughs> damn it, no, man. No well, then you fucked that. up. <laughs> no, but uh, this idea that we think of right now, beer is, and it is. And I, I tell people all the time, we're at, we're at a time right now. It's unprecedented the amount of selection that the consumer has, right? But one thing that we haven't seen yet, and is this uh, influx of once you start getting a broader inclusion of uh, different types of people that are actually involved in the brewing process, whether that be Taiwanese, uh, Vietnamese, Mexican, Puerto Rican, there's already some. But, man, you think of all the flavor profiles that haven't even been touched yet, you know what I mean, in regards to beer. There could be a third wave of just like really wild shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's I. I don't have any examples that pop to mind, but I know that sushi beer, bro. There. Well, no, I'm <laughs> I mean, there's you know why not? And I, I mean, there's certainly culinary influences or or influences inspired by specific in- ingredients tied to a culture, and um, 
my understanding is like the the founder of Dogfish Head. He was really inspired by um, cooking and culinary traditions and, and ingredients. You can see that too. I love to, Dogfish Head. Yeah, introduced like um, flavors that you would find in in restaurant kitchens and like how could you incorporate that in, into beers. Now I know that um, particularly in, in the West Coast, there's some breweries that have a little bit more um, cultural influence um, where they're incorporating ingredients that are uh, tied to a specific culture. Um, and even throughout Kansas City, like, you see a little bit of that popping up. Sometimes it's in context and sometimes it's not. Um, so like Strange Days, like they're incorporating different ingredients tied to a certain culture or, or, or influenced by it like their uh, Japanese black IPA that uses um, ginger and uh, a few other Asian ingredients that add character to that the beer. It's not necessarily tied to a Japanese brewing t- tradition or a specific culinary background. Um, another example is uh, New Axiom Brewing um, out in Lee Summit. Um, they have a couple of beers that are specifically tied to um, one of the brewers' um, Mexican uh, upbringing and, and his experiences, and I, I think there's a a lot of room there for for growth and and the, the expression of culture again through drink um, tied to the people making the beer or honoring ingredients that that come from that culture, not and you know not doing it in a way that's ex, you know exploitive, but that's true to the, the roots of that ingredient or the culture and and uh, doing something really cool and interesting with it. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah. And uh, um, have you ever had Five Rabbit out of Chicago? I haven't. They're awesome. So they, they're, they're some Latino. I think one's Puerto Rican, one's Mexican. They, they're doing some Latin stuff. So they do like paletas. It's like those um, – like uh, Mexican icy like yeah. popsicles, so they do a, a flavor like different flavors: guava, watermelon. They'll do a different release of the sweet style. They have, um, you know, uh, a leche, cafe de leche is like a cream uh, stout, a cream chocolate. I mean, really good stuff. Uh, my favorite one is uh, what is they have like a a lime salt wheat, uh, something like that. You know, it's it's really refreshing, good beer. But yeah, and I'm just. You know, once people, I just think that have expertise with certain ingredients and then they apply that to like solid brewing techniques, you could do right. some, some good shit. But yeah, you can't eliminate the solid brewing and just, you know, slapping any old ingredient in there to sure. try to make. You got to master the style first. That's like why I mentioned Pilsner a few minutes ago is, it's like, you know, learn how to make a good Pilsner, which is not easy to do. Um, you know, you can't hide your flaws with the pills. Always, you know, and every. T- I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. You just got me excited, but because you and I are very similar, and you know, a lot of the stuff that you're saying makes so much sense to me. But when I go to a brewery, a lot of times uh, the folks I'm with will go like to the most like, uh, let's try the chocolate bourbon barrel aged stout. You know what I mean? And I always just go to their first few flagship beers, you know, like if they have a Pilsner or they have like a Pilsner specifically or um, 
it's another early like a wheat beer or whatever. And sure. if you don't nail that style, I can pretty much tell where the rest of the evening's going in that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a, you can have lots of if, bells and whistles with adjuncts yeah. and. But if you um, nail that pilsner, I'm like, I bet you all their other shit's gonna be you know off the chart. But if they don't, I'm like, uh, you know, there's yeah, trouble there's ahead. Yeah, there's a baseline there, and that's. You know, over in, in kind of the winemaking world, it's uh, one of the things I've been doing lately uh, over the past few months is working at a fence-style winery up in Excelsior Springs. And um, I, I worked there as the, the chef and the brand and events manager. But since it's a small what, what's crew... What's this place called? It's called Fence Style, S-T-I-L-E. Uh, a fence style is actually like a, a short ladder that's used to cross fences and connect neighbors Okay, and so that was the the symbol for the winery of of connecting neighbors and friends, um, nice. and bringing people close together through wine. Um, it's a small. So have winery. you always had a passion for wine as well? Um, I I have for a long time. Uh, I mean, it's I'm I'm kind of equal opportunity when it comes to my interest <laughs> in uh, beer, wine, and spirits, uh, particularly if they're. Uh, locally produced and, and well made. Uh-huh. Um, so, and again, that's the outgrowth of my interest in, in food and like flavor combinations and how things are are produced and like and how they go together, how yeah. they're tied to a specific region or a locality. Sure. Um, and I've I've learned a lot in working with Fence Style over the past uh, year, um, both learning about the the vineyards as well as. The winemaking process and, you know, when it comes time to harvest, I help with that. I help with the bottling of the wine. So, again, you kind of pick up things along the way. So, what kind of grapes and styles of wine are they producing there? So, there's uh, 10 acres of vineyards and um, primarily it's French American hybrid grapes like uh, Vignol, Seval, Vidal Blanc, uh, Chamberson, which is a a red grape. And then uh, Concord is another one that they grow. The reason that they focus primarily on French American hybrid grapes, like a lot of regional wineries, is that the winters in the Midwest are really harsh and, and get cold. And so the classic European and um, West Coast varieties that, that we know, um, like you know, Malbec, um, yeah, like you know, Cab Sauv, Saint Blanc, et cetera, those vines don't grow well and, and and handle the cold weather, and they're really expensive um, to grow and very time-consuming. It takes five to seven years for a newly planted vine to mature wow. and to get um, you know, anchored and stable. And, and so that's a long time investment and costly, only to have the, the vine die off or get diseased. Oh. Yeah. So um, nurseries, as, as well as uh, you know, winemakers have, have learned that these French American hybrids, oftentimes they're grafted onto Norton rootstock. They're a little more sturdier, and yeah, they can handle the hot, dry summers, the cold winters. And and are, have you guys discussed? Are we anticipating like a, a harsh winter, or have you heard of this, or, or do you have? We just no idea. <laughs> I was just curious, being in the business, if you had heard anything like, oh man, um, shit. I don't, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I I had heard some shit like that. There, people were saying I feel like it might like, be. Uh, like short and intense. I think I, I'm no 
meteorologist <laughs> at, at all, but it, it seems Did like I the go pattern... beyond your expertise here. <laughs> I was just curious if you cut some rumblings from from your uh, growers over there. Be like, oh shit, man! Now, now I'm just trying to get inside information, man. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> uh, it seems like over the past couple of years um, that the the winters have been arriving later, starting yeah, later, right. and they're not as uh, as much heavy snowfall. Um, yeah, we in, have in this area. Like when it comes, it's it's really intense. It's uh, a lot more ice and um, you know precipitation, which can be damaging as well um, for vineyards. Yeah, you know if you have you know the vines, like they'll drop all their leaves when it gets cold, but you still have the vines that are s- spread out um, on the trellis and like you know really heavy um, you know ice that could develop will weigh down the, those vines if they're not strong, and that can have an impact. Or even, you know, come springtime, um, the vines, they come out of dormancy and they start to pull the energy from the roots back up through the, the trunk and, and the vines. And you have bud break, which happens around April. What's so, that? So essentially, the vines are starting to, to grow again and, and push out the first um, buds, which will become the leaves and the new vines that will wow. grow and form the canopy. And then... Um, you know, so the, cool, man. Yeah, the, the the grape clusters, you know, will, will start to form as well. It's a cyclical process, you know, and, and it happens <sighs> just like other agriculture. And so what kind of uh, things is Fence offering? What What is it you guys' primary um, business offering? Sure. So Fence Style is mostly known for dry to semi-dry wines. Um, and I kind of mentioned this to circle back around to, you know, beer and, and uh, you know. We need simple. another beer, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe we could take a, a, a pause here. What is it? Uh, and, and then we could come back. Well, we only have about 10 more minutes. We might, I mean, 15 more minutes. What do you want to do? You want to just power through? Let's. Uh, or, or take a quick break and come back and talk about. Let's take a quick break. And okay. Then I'll, I'll talk about a little bit about um, some of the wines that Fence Style Nice. Perfect. All right. Good deal. We'll be back. And we are back, and we've just been rebeard. Cheers, my man. Cheers. Let's do this final leg of our uh, journey. Yes. Our, what is this? Our uh, our expedition, yeah. Our expedition. <laughs> <laughs> so um, earlier we started to chat about some of the wines that Finstyle produces, Um it's known primarily for its dry to semi-dry wines. We do have a few sweet wines as well. But it's, it's kind of atypical from a lot of um, wineries throughout the region that produce predominantly sweet wines. And there's nothing wrong with, with those. Everybody has their own palate and preference. Um, but the the owner, Shreedy Plimpton, um, who founded the winery in 2009, she prefers to make wines that she likes to drink. And she's traveled all over the world, lived around the world, and likes um, those, those drier wines. And so we make um, wines, and they're they're usually named after the grape. So like we have a, a Chamberson, which is really juicy, a lot of berry, cherry notes to it. Wow. And then we have a Reserve Chamberson, which is uh, lightly oaked, and so you get more of those woody notes, maybe a little bit of vanilla to it, a little bit of um, earthy spice on the finish. Uh, we have a really interesting uh, red, also made from the Chamberson grape, and it's called Fire Pit Red, but it has a little bit of Norton blended in. So you get... Um, Pete, we got to do a whole wine 
Oh, uh, sure. We got to shoot a video and then we got to do a wine podcast. You just, you're, this you, sounds fantastic. Yeah. But I'm not even really a wine dude. Per se. I mean, my wife likes wine. I have, to, I don't know shit about it, but it sounds great. Yeah. Maybe you can come <laughs> up to, uh, to the winery. Like, we've got a really beautiful tasting room there. Uh, we've yeah. got a wine cave. Where, where is this at? It's in Excelsior Springs. So it's about yes. 40 minutes north of, of KC. It's a really easy trip up there. Nice. And we could do something on site. We're on video. We're going to do it. I think it would be cool to just shoot like a package of, you know, some video. And then also like just do a podcast where we're just tasting some of these wines or something. Yeah. That would be great, man. Yeah. There's a lot to try. No, I'm totally down for that. But go ahead and continue. No, it's – yeah. So there's uh, Fire Pit Red and like the introduction of uh, Norton with a Chamberson leaves kind of a smoky finish to the beer. Then we have uh, really interesting whites like uh, Vignol. which is, a, again, it's a French-American hybrid that has these pineapple notes to it. And you can taste it on the grapes when you harvest That's them. That's so cool, man. Uh, you know, harvest runs late August through late September for us. You taste those grapes right off the vine, and you can taste um, the pineapple and the, the flavor. And, and then, are these available here locally? Uh, like th- they are. So it's uh, what, what we sell the- primarily um, through the tasting room at... In okay. Springs, but we do have some locations throughout the the Northland, um, like Grain to Glass carries some of our wines. Grain to Glass, man, yeah, such, such yeah. Jennifer, she's she's awesome. So if you guys get, you could find yeah, the you wines can find some at, wines there at Grain to Glass, uh, the brewery um, out south, like Mike's Wine and Spirits in Brookside, Mike's, um, yes. the New Whole Foods in uh, over by UMKC, they carry quite a few of our wines. And then uh, some local restaurants. Um, we're kind of selective. We don't try to have our, our stuff everywhere. We like sure. to really partner with yeah. restaurants and retail that um, understand what we're trying to do. Yeah, um, those are all great places that you named. Yeah, you know, uh, with a lot of uh, local roots and and uh, that pay attention to what it is that they're. You know, putting out there. So we do a lot of education, not only with the people that we collaborate with, but you know, when we do tastings on site or when people come up to the winery, it's educating them about the type of grapes, um, you know, how they're grown, the wines that we're producing. Just like you know, in the earliest days of craft beer, a lot of education was needed, and and it's still needed to bring newcomers along because a lot of people aren't familiar with these French American hybrid grapes. Have Um, you done a tasting at Mike's in Brookside? Um, we haven't yet. Okay, because they have like a room there, and uh, Andy, uh, yeah, d- yeah, he would totally be down to do that, man. I yeah, think that'd be a great idea, you know, just to invite some folks to, you know, do it. They have a the space there that's for that, and so yeah, I mean, I, I think that'd be a great introduction. If you guys do do that, let me know, and then I'll 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 promote it for folks because. Uh, it's pretty easy to – there's, like, room for, like, 20 spots. But nice. then those folks, like, let everyone know. And uh, and we could, you know, blast it on on social media. But I think that would be a great idea to have, you know, a fence tasting at uh, Brookside Mike's. Yeah, absolutely. That would be fun. They, uh, they literally just started carrying uh, some of our, our wines. I made a delivery yesterday. And um, they're – like, they do a lot of hand selling. Like, they, they have a great – customer base and they that's why i think it's a good idea recommendations to do that. Yeah. and so we're excited to work with them and and other businesses around the area um, yeah. to get our wines out there and then hopefully 
we have a lot of people that come up uh, on Barley Bus and um, Casey Winery tours. They'll take buses from Kansas City up to the winery on, on Saturdays. Fun. And always welcome that. Um, <laughs> we get a lot of great groups that come. Uh, we've got a beautiful tasting room indoors. We've got outdoor spaces as well. We offer tours, too. Um, I lead tours on, on Saturdays where you do a wine tasting and a 90-minute tour of the winery, the wine cave that we have. And you learn a lot about the, the vineyards, the wines, uh, the grape varieties. And um, it's really fun and interactive. Man, such a cool – you know, you talk about, you know, what, what is it – that's this awesome. Fence, winery, uh, what's the website? It's uh, fencestyle.com. Fencestyle.com. Yeah, S-T-I-L-E. Um, so you can find us online, um, sign up for our, our email list, check out the, the blog. We have a, a Facebook page as well um, for Fence Style, and we post a lot of events. We have live music. Oftentimes, we've got a, a great um, farm and market wine dinner that's coming up in um, mid-November. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a, a three-course small plates dinner that I'm preparing. Nice. And it features ingredients from three different local farms, uh, Prairie Birthday wow, Farm how in cool, Kearney, um, Bear Share Farm in Kearney, and then Borgman's Which Dairy. Is, you know, such a huge thing, and I think people are getting turned on to that too, like using uh, local uh, sourced ingredients, you know, stuff that we have here readily available, you know. Yeah, and this is... Uh, and it's good stuff. Yeah, it's local, it's seasonal. It's and we're doing some really... Um, I've, I've got a menu together that's, I think, really, you know, elevated and interesting to, to use these ingredients in a, a fresh way. And then we pair them specifically with um, our wines. Um, so it's a, a fun... Where's this at? Um, at so this will be at the winery. Nice. Um, uh, it's November... The 18th, so it's a... Just before yeah. the the holiday, Yeah, right, right before Thanksgiving. And That's fun, man. Yeah, we've got um, you know limited seating available, but it's it's going to be a fun experience. Where do people get uh, tickets for that? You can order... Um, on the website? Yeah, on, on the website, you can email um, events at fencestyle.com or call um, the winery itself, 816-500-6465. Uh, to reserve a ticket, and uh, it's going to be a, a fun experience. It gets back to that what we were talking about earlier of like food and drink, and like you know what what you're eating and drinking and putting in your body, and like uh, about the the taste and the stories where that food comes from. The farmers will be there present, so we'll introduce <laughs> so cool, them. Man. You get to meet the farmers, and they will talk about the the produce that was grown. And you talk, you guys, and and I'm not. I just think that that's such a unique experience. So you have a very knowledgeable uh, person in Pete Dullin who has dedicated a large portion, if not most of his life, to this pursuit. And he's offering his expertise in the realm of, you know, wine, food, and drink. And then also the other folks who are providing the ingredients – I'm sure have their own stories as far as like how they've uh, gotten to the point where they're offering whatever it is, whether it be cheese or the bread or whatever it is, um, or the local uh, agriculture. I just think it's such a unique, uh, great experience, and I'm not just saying that. And, and right before the, what a great you know 
thing to do. I just think it sounds like a lot of fun and it sounds like a, a great experience, you know, to have all those folks come together for something like that. And I think it's going to become more prevalent, but very rare right now still, you know, to have an experience like that, man. And I think it's so cool that you're doing that, man. I, I think it's a great opportunity. I hope people, you know, pull that, that lever and, 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 and go ahead and do that. And it's a testament to you. And I just wanted to mention it is, uh, you seem like a person that's followed your passions, you know, and you're not, you know, writing isn't, uh, the, the path to riches, the quickest path to riches, right? And, and then uh, you're following your passion with food and beer. So you, uh, you're a very credible expert and I, but it's through this passion that you have for, for your subject matter, man. And I, I just think it's a great lesson for folks to see that, you know, you could have, this awesome life, these awesome experiences if you follow your passion. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's something that I, I've tried to do over a, a long time. Um, you know, f- food and writing and then as an outgrowth of food to you know, my interest in, in beer and wine. And it really goes back to um, chasing those things, you know, my passion, um, you know, supporting local, collaborating, um, as well, and you know, sharing the the stories of the the people that are making these really handcrafted um, food and drink, and and these local businesses, and it all kind of comes together, right? Like, yeah, absolutely, and like, leading you to other shit. You're probably get you're probably going to get into other stuff as a result, right? You're meeting all these people. Who knows where it's going to take you next? You're at an awesome spot right now, man. Go and get some of Pete Dolan's books. Uh, for sure, take the chance to that experience down at Fence Wineries with this uh, wonderful dinner that they're planning and any other events that they might have going or go down to Mike's or go down to Jennifer Helber's Grain to Glass and grab you a, a bottle of wine. It's been a pleasure, sir. Do you, do you want anything, any final thoughts? Or? Sure. Um, I mean, if you're interested in the books, you can always order my books through my website, PeteDoolin.com. Um, if you want to learn more about the winery, it's Fence Style Fence. S-T-I-L-E dot com. Um, there's great information there. Or go to the Facebook page uh, for Fence Style as well. Um, thanks a lot for having me. This is a lot of fun. Right on. And we just turned into a pumpkin, and we are out. We're going to go have some more brewskis. <laughs> yeah.